tonight. Is this it? Are we finally through with rising interest rates and what to do if we actually are? You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Amy Wagner, along with Steve Sprovac. Gosh, you know, it's it's hard to say. Day to day, things change around here. And as we've been looking at this economic data, it, when you think about what we were predicting a year ago or a year and a half ago or a month ago, mm-hmm. it really changes on the daily. But I think the one thing that the Federal Reserve, our nation's central bank, seems to have in their favor is that the economic data that continues to come out over the last couple of months, definitely several weeks, seems to be pointing in the same direction that maybe most of the heavy lifting is behind us. Yeah, let's put this in perspective. The last time we had kind of runaway inflation, Amy, was late 70s, early 80s. So our lesson out of that is, okay, to tame inflation, we have to have a brutal recession. In that case, brutal back-to-back recessions. So everybody's assuming, okay, we've got kind of serious inflation again. I guess we're going to have brutal inflation um, uh, or brutal, uh, brutal recession. recession. Yeah. And we got a jobs report out on Friday that was really good. It was kind of a Goldilocks report. And what it's telling us, Amy, is, you know what, we just might get through this and, and knock down inflation, maybe even without a recession. Let, let, let me um, let me explain a little bit. Um, the jobs report that came out Friday Yeah, there were 187,000 jobs created. That's a little more than we want, which normally is good news. But what the Federal Reserve wants to see is a slowing economy. That means they did their job. The economy's slowing. Inflation will then come down. Everybody's happy. Well, that number was a little higher, but we got more data on previous months where they were able to go ahead and revise the numbers. As more data comes in, they get Mm -hmm. better and better numbers. And those jobs numbers from the previous two months were revised downward by 110,000 jobs. So in other words, the economy is slowing down. On top of that, unemployment went up, not because a lot of people are out of work. There aren't massive layoffs. There are just more people entering the workplace. So unemployment is uh, 3.8%. From the 3.5 it was at. And in other words, the economy is slowing down, but it's slowing down gradually. There aren't mass layoffs. And this is a good trend and exactly what the Federal Reserve wants to see. A year, year and a half ago, it looked like there was the slimmest of chance that this would happen. And as time has gone on, it just looks like, okay, this is becoming more and more likely. And I want to talk about the point that you just made, Steve, which is more people entering the job force, more people looking for jobs right now that had been on the sidelines. I think there's a, a number of reasons for that. And if you look at personal savings rate and personal spending rates, right, people have less in savings right now, all that extra money that everyone was a flush with during the pandemic, as you and I predicted at some point, <laughs> we, we knew were just going to last. Oh, exactly. we were going to spend yeah. our ways, yeah. you know, right out of that into, you know, a point where now there's, of course, record debt and all of those things again. So people who maybe were sitting on the sidelines, not looking for jobs because you just had cash sitting around, you're likely running out of that cash quickly. And so starting to look for jobs again. And as the result of that, bosses, employers, 
have more options, right? It, they, there was the right. longest time there where the labor market was so tight and you could go in and ask for a raise and you were likely going to get it. And if you didn't, you could easily go left, right, center, anywhere you looked for another job because there were so many opportunities. Well, now things are starting to shift back that momentum where employers have more candidates looking for jobs, um, which is kind of loosening that labor market that has been so tight. And so it kind of happened in a different way, right? We didn't have a recession where there were mass layoffs. Instead, we just had people getting back into the workforce, yeah. creating more opportunities for employers to hire. Um, and as a result, we kind of ended here, ended up in the same place, maybe just in a roundabout way. Yeah, I, I don't think we can underestimate the impact the pandemic had on the labor market. Yes. I, I mean, it was a big deal. When have we shut down, literally shut down the U.S. economy? Never. I, I mean, that's what we did almost overnight. And when you do something like that, you don't know how it's going to play out. And you certainly don't know how it's going to ramp back up. And and the answer is, well, it's going to ramp back up in fits and starts. And, and it's not going to happen overnight. And, and so we had all these supply chain issues. We had a lot of people that said, yeah, you know what? I kind of like being out of work. This works good. Um, until <laughs> I kind of like of sitting on my couch <laughs> eating Cheetos all day long. Exactly. Kind of fun. I'm sorry. you. Had just, you know I'm just throwing doing? that out there as, okay, a, as okay. a thing. But but literally, I mean, we've got data to support this. Uh, the San Francisco Fed just literally just today came out with a report that, that said excess savings in this country are pretty much depleted and should yep. be depleted by the end of the quarter. It, you know, so in other words, all that money that you saved up by not going out or not traveling or all the above during the pandemic, you pretty much run through that money and, and now you're going back to work. And, and instead of having two people for every job, um, it's starting to get back to normal. It's starting to get back to, you know what, I, I think I'm going to look for a job. I hope I get it because I'm interviewing with 10 other people. Yeah. You know, this is normal. This is what the economy should be. It took us a couple of years to get here, but, you know, we've never gone through it before. So how would you know what to expect? You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Amy Wagner, along with Steve Sprovec, as we talk about the latest data coming out, jobs numbers, the labor market, showing us that while maybe a year ago, there were all these economists predicting that the sky is falling, it's going to be the worst recession our country has ever seen. I mean, I'm thinking back, Steve, through all the headlines that we talked about, laughed about, made fun of here on the show, but a, a lot of them were very doom and gloom about yeah, getting ready yeah. to go through maybe the yep. worst thing that we'd seen as, as, as a country country and our economy since the Great Depression. Uh, and we really haven't seen any of that. We've seen actually a lot of success out of the Federal Reserve. If you want to talk about, uh, you know, charting a path here, raising interest rates in order to bring down inflation and at the same time, the economy not going into this deep, deep recession that a lot of people were saying, you know, I think about earlier this year, they were talking about, you know, a 50 percent chance of a recession, a 30 percent chance of recession. Now there's a lot of economists that are saying 10 percent. Maybe less than ten yeah. percent. Well, go Goldman Sachs has has been pretty outspoken about, hey, here's what we think the odds of a recession are this year. And, and you know, if you go back just to March, they were saying thirty five percent chance, which was better than where it was at sure. earlier. And I, a lot of other people are saying, oh, it's a gimme. First quarter this year, we're going to have a recession. I, you know, uh, mark it down. Um, they're down to fifteen. Goldman Sachs is saying fifteen percent chance of a recession. In other words, eighty five percent chance that we're not going to have a recession. 
Um, that's pretty darn good. And they're not the type to go out on a limb based on flimsy data. So they've got a lot of reasons to to support their thought process. And I'll, I'll tell you what, Amy, Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, if he comes out of this deal uh, and we don't go into a recession, he should be up for the Nobel Prize. I, I mean, that, that's that's pretty, pretty darn good. So, you know, what it's one thing to talk about. But how do you use it to your advantage if we don't go into a recession? And this is pretty much it on interest rate hikes. I mean, the Fed meets again the 19th and 20th of this month. Um, if they you know, don't raise rates, which it doesn't look like they, they're going to, this may be it. We may be done hiking interest rates. So, you know, where do we go? What do we do as investors, as consumers to take advantage of? OK, maybe this is it with hiking interest rates. Well, and I want to to your point when you're talking yeah. about maybe that we're at the end of this. There was a 71 percent chance of another hike literally a week ago. And as this new information has come out, now we're down to less than a 40% chance of another yep. quarter point rate hike this year. And so it looks like maybe we've come out of it. And listen, there could be more data out tomorrow that says 95% chance. Oh, I mean, the data changes, the our opinions are going to change. No exactly. And, yeah. and we've seen that a million times over yeah. the past couple of years, just all over the place. But at this point, it looks like, yes, maybe we've come out ahead uh, and you know not in a recession and we don't maybe need additional rate hikes. And to your point, what do you do, right? What can you, how can you take advantage of this? If you have kept your money in that checking account uh, and it's just been growing and growing and growing, right? The money that's not invested. Um, if you have not sought out a high yield savings account, a CD, something like that, that's paying a higher interest rate than 0.0001% like we got used to before and during the pandemic. Well, now's the time to seek that out. And I'm talking about right now. Yeah. When interest rates are going up, you don't want to be locked in. I, I mean, you don't want everybody else to be getting a higher interest rate than you. When interest rates are going up, you want to see your interest going up. Well, guess what? That's what a money market is. So when interest rates are going up, you want to keep your excess savings in a money market, FDIC insured, so there's no risk. And interest rates go from two and a half to three, you're going to get three. Go from three to three and a half, you're going to get three and a half. But when interest rates have peaked, that's when you want to start thinking about locking in at least a portion, the money you don't think you need for a certain period of time, unless some crazy emergency happens. And and I actually saw a billboard over the weekend for 5.25% wow. on a six-month CD. Over 5%. I, I mean, that's that's incredible. Now, that might be the outlier, but you know what? Um, should you lock in for one year, two years, and, and get 4.5%, something like that? Well, you know what? If inflation gets back down to 2 or 3, you're actually seeing a real rate of return if you're getting that much return on your deposits in, in a CD or on a treasury bill or on some other type of fixed income investment. Well, we've talked so many times as the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates about the lag time of the effects of that. Yeah. And one of the things that has lagged greatly is that the interest rates on these kind of accounts, right, these high yield accounts, these money market accounts have lagged greatly. And But now we're at a point where we're starting to see, to your point, north of 5%. Right? That would have yeah. been unheard of just a year, year and a half ago. And now yeah. we've got these rates. Now's the time to take advantage of them before they start falling once again. Here's the yeah. all worth advice. Always make sure your financial plan is set up in a way where your investments aren't beholden to outside factors that are completely out of your control. Coming up next, we have a headline that has us ready to pick a fight on your behalf. What you need to know. You're listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial here on 55KRC, the talk station. 
You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Amy Wagner, along with Steve Sprovac. If you can't listen to our show every night, you don't have to miss any of the money advice that we have because we've got a daily podcast for you. Just search Simply Money. It's right there on the iHeart app or wherever you turn to to get your podcast. Coming up at 643, we've got some retirement planning advice uh, for the many who make the real decisions in the household. You may not always direct the conversation, but maybe you should. We've got advice for you. All right. What if you had less than a dime in your bank account, yet you were willing, to, you were able to buy hundreds of thousands of dollars in shares <laughs> of some major companies? What are we talking about here? Well, some dude who yeah. actually works at like an Auntie Anne's pretzel place had nine cents, nine cents in his account, yet was able to literally buy hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of company stocks. Well, at least he wasn't overdrawn until he started <laughs> writing the bad checks. This is amazing. Oh I, and, gosh. you know, they wouldn't name the, the brokerage firm involved. And I'm sure <laughs> the brokerage firm begged the reporter not to name them. But, you know, here's a guy doesn't know. Well, I shouldn't say doesn't have a dime to his name, but he literally doesn't have a dime to his name. He's got almost a cents, dime. Not quite. Right? And, and he goes ahead and writes a million dollars worth of bad checks, deposits them in a brokerage account that he just set up, which then allows them. And this is why I think they don't want to be named to go ahead. Uh, OK, yeah, the checks haven't cleared yet, which obviously they weren't going to clear <laughs> and and says, well, we'll let you go ahead and use 20 percent of that money to buy whatever you want. So he goes out and he buys shares of Tesla, GameStop, NVIDIA, whatever he feels like. You know, this is uh, a guy, like you said, working at an Auntie Annie's and they caught on to him pretty darn quick because those checks bounced all the way back to the bank. <laughs> and it, it just amazes me that he was able to, to literally buy a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of shares on exchanges with bad checks, at least for a little while. How much you want to bet that whoever was in charge of that sort of that component of that brokerage firm is uh, answering some <laughs> yeah. tough questions yeah, today. Yeah, tell me the checks and balances <laughs> we have against this happening again. Yeah, Something went very wrong. They caught on. They did freeze his account. They liquidated all of the holdings before he made any profits. But, I mean, he made seven grand. He yes. made seven grand. It's like, you know. Off what? of maybe nine cents, technically, you know. <laughs> yeah, maybe somebody should hire this guy. I don't know. He claims it was just a joke and he never yeah. really thought of it as fraud. He's spending money that he doesn't have of someone else's. I have a feeling that brokerage firm thinks about it a little differently. He does. But uh, I'm going to file this one under stupid human financial tricks. Don't yeah. don't try this one. If you don't have a dime to your name, don't try to buy several hundred thousand dollars worth of stock. Yeah. Not going to end well. Here's something else that's not ending well. It's a headline that we found in Market Watch, and we hope we found it, and we hope that you didn't because it's downright ridiculous. And we and here's like Market Watch. It, yeah, it, it's a good website. I'm going to tell this morning the first website that I checked no. was Market Watch. It's the no. first thing I go to every day, and I'm I'm not even singling them out as it's Market Watch because it's we find headlines like this across all reputable financial headline head uh, websites. Um, but here's the headline: Here are the odds that the stock market will crash. Crash. That's That'll scary. Get your attention, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it's an interview with the CEO of a company called Hedge Eye risk management. Okay. So right there. Have you heard I'm of on, him before? Nope. Uh, well, no, no, but I, I've got a red flag and, and most people in my industry do, but the average person would not notice anything. Hedge eye. What's a hedge? A hedge is somebody who is trying to make money when other normal mainstream investments are losing money. 
you're betting against the market, right? Yeah. yeah. But that's a hedge. The definition of a hedge is something going up when something else is going down. So already I'm thinking, okay, this guy is going to talk about what's going to happen, how his company can make you money. And you see this a lot with gold, how his company can make you money when the market goes down. And the whole concept of this article on a very reputable website is um, similarities to um, uh, of the stock market today versus the big crash in 1987. Huh? Where does that come from? And what I love even yeah. more or more we, we hate even more is that when he looks at the similarities to 1987, which if you think back, that's Black Monday. I mean, yeah. it, it, that was we, a big we, deal. We talk we talk about that day several times a year as, as one of just the, the bottom was falling out of the market. It was scary, scary to be an investor during that time. And here's a CEO throwing this around. There's a lot of similarities to 1987. He says, and here's one, the market's quick start in January and people are in love with stocks. Oh, okay. So if the market That's goes up in January, eight, you're setting up for a crash? Come it's on. like eight out of 10 years you have those two things yeah, going yeah. on. Yeah. People like stocks when the stock market is up. And if the stock market happens to be up in January, well, that happens all the time. Not yeah. every year, but a lot of years that happens. And so for this guy to make the, the correlation between that major crash and where we are right now, based on those two sets of circumstances, is, is absolutely insane and, and really frustrating to me. Well, it should be frustrating. And I, I think it's kind of financial pornography in all seriousness. I mean, it, it's, it's, yeah. it disgusts me that somebody is trying to compare what's going on today to 1987. I was a broker. I, I wasn't right involved, right in the middle of it. The stock market dropped over 22% in one day. Yeah. It was literally the original flash crash. And there are still arguments over what caused it. My, my pet theory is, uh, okay, this was the beginning of algorithms and, and computerized trading. And, and I, I think that the system just broke down. That, that's my guess. By the end of the year, this was in October. By the end of the year, the market was back at break even. So, I mean, this was over really quick, but 22% in one day. I mean, they were interrupting the news over it. So for somebody to go out there and make claims like um, to what's going on today is eerily reminiscent of what happened right before the 87 crash, I, I, I think is just completely irresponsible and, and it shouldn't be given the time of day. So let's look at what people who we would say are responsible yeah. are saying about this, right? There's an ongoing survey by Yale University, and they claim that 66% of investors think that the risk of a crash in the next six months is 10%. 10% yeah. is not like imminent crashing, right? It's not the kind of headlines that we've been talking about. No one wants to see 10%. But then let's look at what Harvard is saying, right? Harvard has been doing a study, and there's also three scientists from Boston University that, about the probability of this happening. 0.33%, not 33%, no. 0.33% of a crash happening in the near future. Yeah. Well, they were looking at actual data. I didn't like the Yale study because they're asking investors. And you know what? I think 10% of the people out there are just pessimistic anyway. Whether well, it's, think about know, what we came through. Stocks going down or whatever. Well, we just had the, the pandemic, right? We're stocked. We, yeah. had a, we had a recession, a, a month-long recession. And then we had another yeah. one, you know. Uh, Crazy inflation. Yeah. You know? And so we've had things all over the place. So I think it makes sense that maybe a lot of investors are pessimistic about maybe where we're going. But yeah, I like your point. You know, the, the research coming out of Harvard is looking at not people's feelings and emotions about the market. They're looking at actual data. And it yeah. points to a less than 1% probability of this happening. Yet here's the headline in Market Watch talking about odds of a crash happening soon, which makes you think 
they must be pretty high. Yeah, and the average person is going to look at that and say, well, these people must know what they're talking about. Maybe I should cash out. Bad choice. Here's the all-worth advice. Don't let headlines like these scare you. If you see words like crash, the whole story could be completely exaggerated like this one was. Next, we're talking about one of the most important aspects of estate planning with our expert. You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Amy Wagner, along with Steve Sprovac. You think you might be prepared to lose that loved one, but for, for for those who've lost someone who's really close to you, you know that sometimes grief is just all-consuming. And so tonight, we are joined by our estate planning expert from the law firm of Wood and Lamping, Mark Reckman, with some cautionary tales about things that he's actually seen people do, making really bad decisions because they're just grieving. Mark, this happens all the time, but you've seen some pretty bad examples of this. Well, that's right. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen often, but you're right, it does happen uh, here and there almost all the time. And over the last four decades, I've seen a lot of families that are in in a loss. It's always hard. Uh, But lately, it seems I've run into an unusual number of families with really internal issues. So I thought I would tell you three stories. Yeah. Uh, The first story, I've got a mother who had two sons. Uh, One son is local, and one son lived out of town. The local son lived with mom. And by the way, he's mentally disabled. He doesn't work. He lives off Social Security disability and his mother's support. So mom died uh, this year. Her will leaves the house to the out-of-town son, not the disabled son who lives in the house. Hmm. And this was a deliberate choice for Mm -hmm. a good reason. Uh, the, The plan was to preserve and protect the asset so that the son living there would have the use of it. And so in the end, the other son would would have uh, uh, would receive the 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 value of the house when the brother died. Well, the disabled son simply cannot handle the loss. And because of his mental illness, he can't really understand why his mother didn't leave the house to him. Mm. So in his anger and his grief, he goes after his brother physically. Arguments ensue. Um, They actually get into a fight. Uh, Threats are made and it escalates and the police are called. Um, Finally, the disabled brother ends up in the local uh, psych ward under lock and key until he can get medicated and and settle down. But the unfortunate outcome of this was that the out-of-town son is scared Mm. and he's mad, and now he Mm. wants to evict his brother out of the house, which is, of course, the exact opposite of what was supposed to happen, right? Um, You know, Mark, I I want to... I want to mention this really fast because I'm a huge proponent of of having these conversations before something happens. Had that mom ever had this conversation with the son who lived with her explaining if something happens to me, your brother will actually retain control of the house. And this is for this reason. Were, Were conversations like that had or was he not able to understand them even if they did? Uh, I couldn't agree more. And, of course, the planning ahead is is only half the story. Sitting down and explaining to people yes. what the plan is is yeah. just as important as the plan itself. So, so um, how do I've you— got an older married, I've got an older married couple. Um, it's a long-term second marriage for both of them. Uh, they were married for well over 30 years. Uh, they both have grown kids. One of them has four kids. Uh, the other one just has one child. Um, the wife, when the one with the wife has just one child, she brought substantial savings to the marriage, but not much income. The husband brought a lot of income with a, in a pension, 
He brought a lot of income into the marriage, but not much savings. Um, they die within 30 days of each other, which is mm-hmm. a little unusual. Um, they have a trust, and the trust leaves all of their assets equally five ways. Uh, now, the one child, the child who's the, the mother's child, the only child, she thinks that's not fair. She thinks that she should get all of her mother's half, all of the money that her mother owned. She doesn't trust uh, her her um, um, siblings, her half-siblings. Um, both sides hire lawyers. Uh, they lawyer up, and off we go. Uh, but, of course, it plays out by arguing about used furniture and an old truck mm-hmm. that doesn't run, because, frankly, there's not much they can do to change the will itself. And so here this family devolves into into uh, discord, can't get along, and never will. Um, and I've got a third story. I've got a file on my desk right now with an unmarried couple. Uh, they lived together for nearly 30 years in a farmhouse out in the far east side of town. Uh, the farmhouse was left to the man by his mother. He died. And he left the house and the farm and the cows to his girlfriend. Um, He left everything else to his brother. Uh, He named his brother as the executor, but the brother is angry. He's angry that he didn't get the family farm. You see, the family farm came from mom, Mm -hmm. and it went to one son who then turned around and left it to his girlfriend. And so the family farm is now outside of the family. Um, So the brother, who's the executor of uh, of the estate, He's angry. He squares off with his, with the girlfriend, his brother's girlfriend, um, and now they can't even be in the same room together. And the truth is, there's nothing that the surviving brother, as the executor, there's nothing he can do. The will is clear. The probate court's going to enforce the will as written. There's not much he can do, but he can certainly make life miserable uh, for his brother's um, surviving girlfriend. Um, now, guys, fortunately, these kinds of problems are not are not common. This is the exception. It's not the rule. Um, but all three of these situations were fueled by misplaced grief. Uh, grief, grief can cause people to act out. Uh, they can blind people as to the needs of others. And to your point, Amy, all three of these situations could have been minimized by two things, transparency and understanding grief. Um, if the deceased the person had been transparent with his family about what he or she was doing and understand the plan before they died, uh, there would have been much better context. And if the surviving family members had stopped long enough to understand that they were in a grieving process, given that if they had given themselves the time and space to grieve, try not to overreact to other grief responses, and of course everyone is different, um, but processing grief can take time. It can take weeks to years. And people who make major decisions before they have processed their grief sometimes live to regret it. Um, Mark, Mark, we saw this in, in my family when my dad was uh, in ill health and eventually passed away. Uh, and he did not like to talk about personal stuff. He, he did not mm-hmm. want to make plans until the end. And I'm thankful he, he did. He sat down with myself, and I've got three sisters, and said, here are my wishes. And he made uh, one of us, well, he had uh, medical and financial powers of attorneys that clearly placed one of his children as his power of attorney in each of those areas. Um, and when it came down to the tough decisions, 
um, you know, the, the one sister who wasn't really on board with everything dad wanted to do had no choice because uh, it was clear. All four of us knew exactly what his wishes were, and it was in writing as a power of attorney. That's pretty darn important to get it in writing through someone like yourself, correct? Well, it's certainly, absolutely, and it, it's, but probably more important part of that story, Steve, was the meeting that, that dad, your dad held with yeah. the family, that he told them himself, and it was coming from the boss, if I can yeah. steal yep. that, that old phrase. And when the boss sits down and says, this is the arrangement I've made, this is why, uh, it's hard to, uh, to second-guess the boss after the fact. Um, now, look, Steve, the truth is that if a family wants to fight, they're going to fight, and they'll find something to fight right. about. And, and they're, they're, there's a lot of problems that, that good planning won't solve, but there are a lot of problems that it will solve, too. Mark, I love your point here because in all three of these stories, you know, I think, I think you're right. It's, it's, first of all, you don't know how you're going to respond when the grief hits. You've got no idea. You could have the best intentions in the world, and you could absolutely get along great with every family member at every holiday. And then when that grief hits, right, you don't know how it's going to impact you. And so I think the most loving thing that that person can do is to communicate once those plans are drawn up with everyone who's impacted so that there are no surprises. And I think that's my takeaway from all three of these kind of worst-case scenarios here. Again, thanks for your insights, Mark Reckman, our state planning expert from the law firm of Wood and Lamping. You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Amy Wagner, along with Steve Sprovac. If you've got a financial issue or a question that you just can't figure out on your own, there's a red button you can click on. It's while you're listening to the show right there on the iHeart app. Record your question. It's coming straight to us. We'd love to talk about it here on the show and help you figure it out. Straight ahead, there are good times to buy certain things and bad times. When we're talking about used cars, well, things have changed. We'll tell you what you need to know if you're looking to buy or sell one anytime soon. Steve, this happened to me um, when I was in my uh, 20s, was married. We, we sat down with our first financial advisor. Mm -hmm. um, and when I say we sat down, we were technically both sitting across from the man. But to be clear, he didn't look at me once. He, he talked to my husband the entire time, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I really felt left out in the cold. And as you know, that's not a place where I like to be. And uh, <laughs> and I want to talk now specifically. Um, he did listen, not know where the real power lied. He, he had no idea what he was doing <laughs> or the fact that he would never see our faces ever again. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I think this happens very often that one person kind of takes the reins and, and studies and, and research show us it's often the man who kind of takes that lead role when it yep. comes time to the money. And listen, women who are listening, like, please step up in husbands and in partners and in fathers and sons, include those women in the conversation because well, also research shows us they will probably live longer than you and they're yeah. going to be on their own at some point. Yeah, and women have different financial planning needs than than men in a lot of cases. I I, I mean, I, I I know a lot of people. I'm sure you do too. Where uh, the woman kind of set her career aside once kids came around. My wife is one one of those. She you know college educated, had a great career going. Um, I ruin her life by um, meeting her, and and you know that uh, someday she stuck she'll it wake out up all these say, years. What the heck was I even thinking? But anyway, I digress. Um, no, but in all seriousness, she gave up a heck of a career, and, and I've seen this time and time again. Uh, and because of that, 
a lot of the wealth is in, even though it might be shared in a good long marriage, um, a lot of the wealth is in the husband's name. And yet you're, you're spot on. Uh, women tend to outlive men. For a woman um, who has already reached the age of 65, um, there's a, an 80% chance she will exceed the age of 86, even though the average age for men and women is 79 and 73 at death, uh, respectively. So one way or the other, women outlive men. Um, health issues come with those long lives. And these create some very important financial planning needs. I've seen it in my own life. When my oldest was born, I was working full time and I was on maternity leave. And I thought I, I cannot possibly go back to working 60, 70 hours a week like I had before she was born. And I ended up job sharing and working part time. No. And then and then a few years later, my mom passed away from breast cancer and I was heartbroken. And I went to work for a charity organization where, by the way, uh, you know, they didn't have a ton of money. There was no 401k. Right. So I worked there for a couple of years. And, you know, there was no money building in a 401k at that time. So I just think women's paths might often look different than men's. Um, and, and I've seen far too often just in sitting down with my friends, um, you know, we'll ask questions. Of course, I ask, like, do you have a health savings account and things like that? And often yeah. they'll say, I don't know, I'll have to ask my husband. And I really encourage um, women in that situation, please figure things out. And, and if, if you both go and meet with a financial advisor, tell your husband, hey, I'm going to take the reins in this conversation. Yeah. This time, I'm going to answer the questions. If I get it wrong, you let me know. But that way, at least you're used to being part of that conversation and, and helping to understand exactly what your goals are, um, exactly where the money is, so that if something does happen to him, you are not left completely overwhelmed with absolutely no clue of what's going on. A Amy, um, yeah, I could not have said it better. I have seen the opposite. Um, one too many times is, is one time is one too many times where the wife comes in after the husband passed away and the wife never came into any meetings with me. Mm -hmm. No, that was his department. He did all of that. And she came in literally, I'm thinking of one person in particular with a shoebox of statements saying, I have no idea where to go forward. And we're, you know, you've got to be engaged. I, I think the husband and wife need to participate in every planning session, whether it's of interest to you or not, because someday it may be very important to you, even though that day may not be today. The National Council on Aging um, has some research on this. They talked to 1,500 women over the age of 50 and said, what are you most worried about when it comes to money? Uh, paying for health care during retirement was yeah, number, number one. one on that list. Yeah. Also, though, high on that list, just concerns about financial planning, maybe not really knowing where things are. And, you know, as we're talking about the fact that women live longer, um, but also gray divorce is it growing at, a, at a, an alarming rate. You may find yourself, you know, divorced from someone that you've been married to for 20, 30, 40 years and all of a sudden in control of this situation. So there's lots of reasons why I would say, hey, women, if you just aren't really clear about where the money is and how it's invested, it's time to kind of catch up. Here's the all worth advice. Remember, everyone's financial situation is unique. So your financial plan should be too, regardless, man, woman, whoever you are. Coming up next, when the time to buy and sell a car may have changed. You're listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac.
to buy or not to buy, to sell or not to sell. You know, it's been interesting because there's all these kind of patterns about, you know, the best time of the year to buy a house or sell a house or buy a car or sell one. But the pandemic has just upended all of that. And now yeah. we're trying to figure out, okay, where we are now, we're starting to have chips in cars and in there's actual cars on car lots now. Uh, so now yeah. when is the best time to buy and sell? So many cars, so little time. You know, I love cars. I am more than happy to talk about cars on this segment. Um, it, it's really interesting. I, I, You know, it's amazing how expensive cars have gotten yes. in, in the last couple of years. I, I mean, the average price of a new car is up to $47,000. That's nuts. I mean, that's not, you think, okay, and well, must- cars. We have three oh, teenagers no. that we have had to buy a car for. Oh, in the I don't. Past I can't imagine what you're going through. And I yeah. say buy a car for, like you know, they're helping and things like that. But yeah. you know, it used to be that you could buy a quality, safe, dependable, reliable car that doesn't have three hundred thousand. Yeah. No. Now, I mean, now you are looking at what I would have thought you would buy, pay for a new car just yeah. for a used car. And and I don't know. I think it's starting to come down a little bit, but it's not it coming is. down quickly. No, I and the, the the reason this is really a supply chain issue because remember all those cars that everybody was talking about? Yeah, I saw a couple thousand pickup trucks parked at Kentucky Speedway. Yeah, yeah. you know, well, the problem was um, we had problems getting chips uh, into this country during the pandemic, and you can't sell a car if stuff doesn't work on it. So the dealers didn't have new cars. People that went in to buy a new car, uh, well, okay, I don't have any new cars to sell you, but I've got these used cars you can walk off the lot with today. And guess what? When you have that much of a surge in demand in used cars, used car prices go up. So you couldn't get a new car and used cars prices were up 40 and 50 percent over where they were at before the pandemic. 40 to 50 percent. They're still about 40 percent higher than normal, but they're coming down because new cars are in the showroom and that takes away the demand on used cars. And that brings up the next point, which is, all right, when's the best time if you've got a car that you want to sell, you're selling a used car? Guess what? They're going to keep dropping because supply chains are getting fixed. So if you're going to get rid of your used car, pretty much now is the time. Yeah, and actually data shows that used car listing prices are about 3% higher right now, or about a 1,000 more than just, just after Labor Day. So now yeah. is the time. And I think we, we always think of kind of like the traditional times, which is like, okay, January, when all the new cars for the next year come out on the lot, it's January. Well, actually, yeah. now they're pushing that to February and saying, okay, if you're going to buy a car or buy a used car or a new car, uh, February is the time to do it. So maybe around those President's Day sales rather than the first of the year. So things are Shifting, it's kind of hard to keep up with. So wait, you're supposed to sell your car now, but not buy one until February. How am I going to get, I gonna get around? It's a lot scooter? of Uber costs right there. Scooter? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I, I used to do this. I used to do this. Oh, that would be funny. And I'll have a helmet with flames on it. <laughs> <laughs> I used to do this with motorcycles when I was a kid. You sell a motorcycle in the, uh, it, you, you buy it in the fall or winter and you sell it in the spring when everybody wants it. Mm. Supply and demand. Economics yeah. so 101. Figuring these things out can help you save and actually make more. Thanks for listening tonight. We hope you'll tune in tomorrow. We're talking about one of the most underrated aspects of a financial plan. You've been listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial here on 55KRC, the talk station.